Welcome to Grow the Pie, the podcast where we ask the tough questions for responsible business. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, and I'm with Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Hello, Alex. Hi, Tom. It's great to be back. So in the opening episode of this series, we talked about how your theory of economics matches up against other theories of the role of the corporation, including Milton Friedman's profit maximization view, enlightened shareholder value and the triple bottom line. Since we recorded that episode, we've had the 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman's most influential essay on the social responsibility of business, which has triggered some lively debates with some proponents pronouncing Friedmanism as dead, but others arguing that its replacement, which Lucian Bebchuk and Roberto Tallarito describe as stakeholderism, perhaps slightly pejoratively, they describe this replacement for Friedmanism as incoherent and potentially even undemocratic. You yourself published an article, What Can Stakeholder Capitalism Learn from Milton Friedman, on the ProMarket website. So we thought we would dig into this a little more, and it will act as a good reminder on the principles of Pyconomics in order to wrap up the discussion of your book. So could you just remind us, Alex, what was it that Friedman said and what was the context of his article at the time? Thanks, Tom. I think emphasising the context is really important because many people forget the context when they read the article. So as one of my former pastors said, a text without a context is a pretext. So if you ignore the context of Friedman, you could use that as a pretext for arguing how evil capitalism was because they ignore the time that he was writing. So the time that he was writing was the time that the um, Johnson administration was trying to get large corporations to take on the responsibilities of government. For example, because their wage and price controls were failing, they said, well, it's as a company, your responsibility to make sure that you pay fair wages and, and set fair prices. But what Friedman said is that that is just mixing two different roles. So the government should focus on designing policies that serve wider society. So if indeed society thinks there shouldn't be too much inequality, there should be minimum wages and there should be progressive income tax. But what the company should do is play by the rules. They said they should maximise long-term profit as much as possible given the rules. So it's just like if you're having a tennis game, right? an umpire should purely focus on making sure that the ball is in the lines and call it out if it's not. But subject to that, players can play with as much slice or spin or force as they want to. They don't need to think about, oh, if I put too much slice on this, is it unfair as long as they stay within the rules? So that clear separation is what uh, Milton Friedman was advocating. And what I thought was interesting about your intervention was that you explored how some of the assumptions that underpinned Milton Friedman might not actually apply in practice and that it was really in these failed assumptions that the origins of Pyconomics in in some respects lies. So um, let's just talk about each of those. So the first one you say was that, you know, part of Friedman's argument was that, you know, a company shouldn't give to charity because it has no better ability to choose a charity than its shareholders do. So the company's better giving the money to the shareholders for them to give it to charity. And you link this to your principle of comparative advantage. So, So can you explain that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so Friedman, many people say that he was just um, argued that people only care about profits, but that was not actually true at all. Friedman recognised that individuals might have social responsibilities. So if you and I, Tom, were shareholders in Vodafone, it may well be that I want to donate part of my profits to a cancer charity, and you might want to donate part of your profits to an animal rights charity. So he recognised that individuals might have social responsibilities. But his article was called The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Profits. And why he said that that was the case is that if a company is profitable, then that maximizes the power of individuals, you and I, to satisfy our own social responsibilities. So what he said is that with charitable donations, Vodafone shouldn't choose to give their money to a cancer charity because that makes me happy and that makes you unhappy. Instead, they should make as much money as possible and then give out the profits as dividends to both you and me. And then we can choose to spend our dividends on whatever we'd like. Uh, Not to do that would be undemocratic because the CEO would be choosing her preferred charity to support. Now, but as you say, Tom, that rests upon the assumption of no comparative advantage that a dollar given by Vodafone to a charity is only worth the same as a dollar that you and I give it to. So Vodafone is no better giving the money than than we are. But there are many actions where Vodafone does have a comparative advantage. So what I mentioned in the book is Vodafone launching M-Pesa, this mobile money service in Kenya. And that's something Vodafone can do much better than you and I, because what Vodafone did by doing that was it lifted 200,000 households out of poverty. Why? Because Vodafone has particular expertise in telecoms. It achieves far more by directly launching this mobile money service to provide financial inclusion to Kenya than it could do if it paid out the money to you and me, and then we gave the money to a charity that works in the developing world. So comparative advantage is actually one of the principles where where you say in the real world, actually, what Friedman pronounced doesn't quite apply. And the second one was his assumption that the right place to decide these trade-offs is the realm of public policy and politics. And, you know, this is based on the idea that if a CEO is forced to make a decision between shareholders and another set of stakeholders, and she chooses in favour of the stakeholders, then implicitly that is a tax on the shareholders. And actually, in a in a, in a recent paper, Lucian uh, Bebchuk uh, and Roboto Tallarito uh, make make a similar argument actually around the legitimacy of CEO discretion. But you challenge this notion in your article that policy does work in in all areas, and that actually there is a legitimate role for company discretion. Can you expand on that? Certainly. And I'll first start stand in the author's corner and, and argue why people argued, Friedman and, and Lucian Bebchuk and Roberto Tellerita argued that this should be left to governments, is they said, well, governments are democratically elected. So if the electorate decides that climate change is the most important issue, maybe even more important than, say, um, full employment, then they will set high carbon taxes even though they know that that might lead to, say, the energy sector having to shed jobs. But there is a political process for resolving those difficult trade-offs 
which is that the electorate votes for a government that best represents their position. If the CEO of a company was to choose, do I close down a polluting plant based on anything other than shareholder value, then as you say, Tom, she's imposing her own uh, preferences, and that's something which is undemocratic. So that's why they were arguing, well, leave these tricky trade-offs to policymakers. Now, that, that fails for a couple of reasons, however, in practice. And one reason could be, well, the political system doesn't work because there's a lot of lobbying by, by, by companies. Number two, it could be that just the political system is, is really slow. So it might be that you're only elected once every five years and some of these issues are pressing. Sometimes the law is slow to, to catch up. But I think the third one is the more nuanced problem, which is that policy is only good at highlighting quantitative aspects. Why? Because you can only pass a law on things that you can measure and enforce in a court. So there's a minimum wage law because you can figure out if a company's violating that. But you can't have a law on something such as providing meaningful work to employees. So it could well be that the electorate does believe that companies have a responsibility to create decent jobs, but they could never vote for a government to legislate that because that's something that just could not be legislated. So it could well be that companies would be benefiting their own shareholders by providing meaningful jobs, because it might be that their own shareholders care not just about financial wealth, but also a society in which people in work can flourish and have skills development. And in that case, then the company is adding value by pursuing something other than explicit shareholder value maximization. So it could well be in shareholders' interests for a company to go above and beyond and provide meaningful work, even if that doesn't maximize shareholder value. Why? Because it may well be that as shareholders, you care not just about the financial return from your investment, but the company contributing to a cohesive society, because you'd like to live in a world in which people have the opportunity to flourish in their jobs. But despite the fact that I think that not all of Friedman's assumptions are always true, right, there are cases in which policy doesn't work, I still think that the article is useful, even today in 2020. And that's why I called my article, What Stakeholder Capitalism Can Learn from Milton Friedman. Why? Because there are cases in which his assumptions hold, right? Charity is a case in which no comparative advantage does hold. Therefore, I don't think companies should give to charity. And the second, the idea that policy works, policy does work in some cases, particularly in the cases where something can be measured or monitored. So minimum wage is a case where policy works. So if a company is going to choose to voluntarily pay more than the minimum wage, and market forces don't dictate that because your competitors aren't, it needs to have a good reason for why the government might have set the minimum wage wrongly. And there might be a good reason for that, but you need to first ask that question before choosing to deviate from the government policy on something that can be legislated. Yeah, and and particularly if you don't think that there's a long-term shareholder value benefit from from you deviating from it, because I guess there could be a sort of an efficiency wage argument, but but that's a slightly different point, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. So the third point that you refer to is is this point about measurability of of outcomes, and you describe this in your article as actually being 
what you see is actually the most persuasive case for a responsible approach to business. So what did you have to say on that? Yeah, so I think this goes back again to one of the big misunderstandings of Milton Friedman. So people said, ah, because he was arguing that companies just focus on increasing profits, he was advocating, well, let's screw everybody else and not care about wider society. But he never said that, right? So why he said that it's fine for a company to just focus on profits is that as long as we define those profits as long-term profits, in order to maximize long-term profits, a company needs to treat society well, right? You have to train your employees, otherwise they will not be productive. You can't pollute the environment or its brand will be hurt. And you have to provide great customer service or your customers will walk away. So he explicitly wrote, it may well be in the long run interest of a company that is a major employer in a small community to devote resources to providing amenities to that community or to improving its government that may make it easier to attract desirable employees. So Friedman certainly had a lot of time for taking stakeholders seriously. But where I view him as being a little limited is that he assumes that you can do that in an instrumental way. So when you calculate whether or not am I going to treat my employees better by giving them parental leave, you can predict the effect it has on future profits. But as we covered in the first episode, right, that's something which is really difficult to predict in a world of uncertainty. Let me explain what we mean by uncertainty, right? Because we, we know what risk is. So risk is the idea that we don't know what the outcome is, but we can at least have some broad set of parameters. Maybe there's a 5% chance that our product succeeds and there's a 95% chance that it fails. We can deal with risk. We can have a very complicated spreadsheet to deal with all of those different situations. But uncertainty is an issue where we don't even know what the parameters are to begin with. Like we have no idea that if, say, Google launched 20% time a few years ago, that they're going to come up with something like Google Maps or Gmail and so on. So those are things where you have no idea if you make an investment what will come out of it. So you don't even have anything to put on a spreadsheet to begin with to build a scenario analysis around. So as Donald Rumsfeld was famous for saying, you've got known unknowns. And that is the analogy of risk. But there's unknown unknowns, which is uncertainty. And in a world where there's a lot of unknown unknowns, then the instrumental approach of trying to calculate the net present value of an investment, which was what Friedman was advocating, isn't going to work. It's not practically operational. So, Alex, this is, this is very interesting because you seem to be accepting the broad thrust of what Friedman said. I mean, you're certainly not a Friedman rejectionist, but you are identifying some important details where you think Friedman's doctrine doesn't absolutely apply in the real world. So how would you describe yourself as being on this spectrum between, you know, shareholder value maximization and stakeholderism? So I'd say I'm a middle ground between the two. So on the one extreme, you have pure freedom, which argues you need to focus on only profits, because if not, you have all of these problems of lack of accountability. And then at the other extreme, you have this idea that you should have a focus on stakeholder value, but that's accused of, of, of being nebulous, because there's no clear way to make uh, decisions and to resolve trade-offs between different stakeholders. So my idea of focusing on things such as materiality and comparative advantage are halfway in the middle. So the idea of materiality is that if you are to focus your efforts on stakeholders other 
than shareholders, you need to make sure that they are material stakeholders because that's most likely to feed back and lead to long-term shareholder value. So on the one hand, that isn't a free-for-all. But on the other hand, it's not purely instrumental because, yes, even though you've got some sense that certain stakeholders are more important for your business than others, you're still not calculating. So let's say I've decided that my employees are material to me because I'm in a human capital intensive business. It still means that when I choose to provide my employees with better training or better parental leave, I'm still not doing a calculation. But what it means is that I'm much more willing to take an investment where there's a lot of uncertainty and I can't justify it on a financial basis if indeed it's benefiting material stakeholders. So that's where I'd see it is that there's a bit of both in it. Like we do want to have some principles to guide investment. So I do agree with people in the Friedman camp, which was to say that to have no ideas and no principles and, and just to say we're going to maximize value for everybody, that's something where there could be lack of accountability. But also recognize we want principles rather than rules because there's a limit to what we can quantify, particularly in 2020 where there's a lot of uncertainty. And I would also say that you know, having discussed your your book at length through this podcast series and, and outside, you would support the view, I think, that on the whole, board members' actions should be directed towards shareholder value in the long term. And, and you don't see instances where boards should be intentionally destroying long-term shareholder value to favour other stakeholders. Is that right? Or are there circumstances where you could see that trade-off being made? I, I do think that trade-off could be made if that trade-off has the buy-in of shareholders, because there may be cases in which shareholders will know that actually decarbonisation will be expensive to us even in the long term, but we're willing to make that sacrifice. But I, it's important to make sure that you do have shareholders buy-in, that um, this wasn't something that the board just happened to do because it happened to be the order of the day. So that links back to the idea of say on purpose that we discussed a, a few episodes ago. And, and it gets around some of this criticism that there's lack of accountability, right? There can still be accountability even in a framework that departs from pure shareholder value maximization as long as you've got your shareholders to vote on this. But you're still seeing the shareholder legitimacy as being very important to support that director action. I do, because shareholders ultimately own the company, so they have financial ownership in it. I know that there's some arguments as to uh, what is the legal ownership of the company, but certainly in the UK and the US, it is shareholders who have primacy, but shareholder primacy does not mean, as people argued previously, a a, a focus on short-term profits. Shareholder value is an inherently long-term concept, and shareholders may care about something other than just their financial returns, so I do think it's important to, to ground this in shareholders. And obviously, any sensible shareholder will also take into account the impact on stakeholders because they will recognize that if a company does something which is socially unacceptable, right, then customers will walk away or employees walk away. But the nice thing about grounding it in shareholders is that shareholders are ultimately affected by almost any decision that a company takes that exploits stakeholders. Why? Because if employees are not motivated or if customers walk away, that will affect the bottom line for shareholders in the long term. And and I think also another point that you very powerfully made is that um, this idea of long-term shareholder value maximization as being this sort of very pure, explicit decision tool is is actually a little bit unrealistic because what managers actually face day-to-day is a choice between discrete projects, the outcomes of all of them being 
highly uncertain. So, you know, we need some sort of decision tools that are non-quantitative. And I think you make that point extremely powerfully. But I would like to come on to a, a couple of objections that, that are made by Lucian Bebchuk and Roberto Tallarito in, in their um, recent paper, which is uh, called The uh, Illusory Promise of Stakeholder Governance. So just from its title, you can understand where where it's coming from. And actually, I think for anybody who is an advocate of a more stakeholder-oriented view of capitalism. I think, I think this is a paper that's, that's well worth reading just to, to see the counter-arguments. And one of the points that he makes is that actually, you know, in practice, uh, this idea of giving management more discretion over decision-making is flawed because the evidence suggests it won't be exercised in favour of stakeholders. And he draws on evidence from where there are constituency statutes in certain states in the US and how directors have used these in takeovers. And he also looks at the evidence from people who've signed up to the business roundtable and how they haven't actually changed anything that they've done. I mean, there is something fair in this, isn't there, that we, we shouldn't expect managers being given discretion to to solve all of our problems around the responsibility of business? I think it's entirely fair. So what he looks at is that if even if managers make these statements about serving wider society, they don't put it into practice. But then the question is, well, why don't they put it into practice? And I think part of the reason might be the pie-splitting mentality is the idea that if they are to serve wider society, that's going to be at the expense of profits. And so if that's indeed the case, then you can't blame them for not wanting to put it into practice. It's going to make the company less successful. So if you want to practice responsibility, just make sure it's a nice sounding statement, but you don't change your decisions based on that. So that's why the goal of the book and and my research more generally is to highlight the business case for responsibility, this pie growing idea that it's in your interest to actually take this seriously and invest in your stakeholders. And so I think that's perhaps what is missing is that there might be some CEOs who view this as a compliance exercise or PR exercise, not being about the long-term fundamental success of business because they, they see the evidence that investing in your employees and investing in your material stakeholders does lead to long-term value improving, then I do think managers will be more likely to put it into practice. And I think there is some more positive evidence. So when you and I had the podcast on executive pay, and we looked at the evidence by Carolina Flammer and Tima Bansal and what happens when managers are paid according to the long-term stock price, we saw that not only are they improving shareholder value, but they are also improving stakeholder value. So those managers do at least understand that in order to focus on the long term, they do need to take their stakeholders seriously. I think another thing that it highlights for me is that most advocates of responsible business or a more stakeholder-oriented approach to business view that as being on an opposite end of the spectrum to shareholder rights, whereas what comes through very strongly in your work is that actually you see strong shareholder rights as an essential enabler of responsible business, but you're just broadening a little bit the view of of what shareholder kind of preferences and views might be taken into account by businesses. So so I think you're you're at a different point in the spectrum there as well, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Because if if you look at the um, European Commission study, which we referred to in the last episode, the very first statement in the abstract is about short-term shareholder value. But that's a contradiction in terms, right? Because shareholder value is an inherently long-term concept, right? What you learn in Finance 101 is shareholder value 
is the present value of all future cash flows of a company until the end of time. And that's not just in theory, it's in practice as well. This is why a lot of tech companies have valuations far in excess of their short-term profit. So ironically, what that means is that some companies who are not investing in their stakeholders, the problem is not too much of a focus on shareholder value. It's too little of a focus on shareholder value because they're focusing on profit and short-term profit is not shareholder value. So that's why I believe that, um, ironically, in order to try to repurpose capitalism and get um, managers to focus more on stakeholders, we actually need a greater focus on shareholder value where shareholder value is correctly defined as the long-term financial value of a company, plus perhaps some non-financial objectives that shareholders have, which are beyond even long-term profits. Yeah, and I think this does also address then one of the other criticisms that that Bebchuk makes of what he calls stakeholderism, which is that it's sort of impossible to figure out actually how you'd get input and representation from all of these constituencies, because again, you are rooting it in the existing very strong line of accountability that that has proven successful between shareholders and companies. That's exactly right. And we we already see ways in which shareholders can have a say. So we initially had voting on directors. Then more recently, we have voting on on pay. And the evidence from, say, on pay is that it's indeed a way to reduce the quantum of pay if it was too high and make pay more sensitive to performance. And so that's why the idea that you and I discussed about say on purpose, where we're trying to canvas shareholders' opinions on any objective that they might have, which is beyond long-term shareholder value, I think that's something which which does make sense and, and has some promise. And we indeed see this in individual cases, right? With Unilever, that was a situation where Unilever had been very clear that their goal was the sustainable living plan, and that might not generate profits, not even in the long term, but the shareholders who had self-selected into the company were ones that had buy into this. And so when Kraft offered this attractive takeover premium, people didn't accept it. So there is certainly a case that shareholders do care about something other than even long-term financial returns. And the goal is to align those shareholders' preferences with what the company is doing beyond just long-term shareholder value. And so then the final point of the Bebchuk and uh, Tallarito paper that I'd like to refer to is this point about stakeholderism undermining efforts for political change in that if we pretend that all the world's problems can be solved by you know management and business acting responsibly then that actually reduces the pressure for much needed regulatory change in the area of carbon taxes and so on and so forth uh, again i sort of sense that you're not quite in the camp of assuming that all the world's problems can be solved by responsible business but perhaps you could describe to our listeners where you sit on that spectrum Yeah, so just like the other concerns with Bebchuk, I I think there's a lot of uh, merit to this concern here is that regulators are are sometimes using companies or investors as a tool for public policy initiatives to make up for the fact that their own policies are are not working. So governments have a responsibility to do things such as improve social mobility, to make sure that education and retraining is is good enough, that that's going to reduce unemployment, to make sure that taxation policy 
enables a fair redistribution of the pie and just to shame companies for doing things such as making workers redundant because the economy is extremely uncertain i don't think that's fair government should take a lot of that responsibility so absolutely stakeholderism should not be an excuse for governments just to be poor in terms of policy and try to leave everything to to companies but instead where i still think that there is a role for stakeholder capitalism or responsible business is as i mentioned earlier there are certain things that governments cannot regulate and they cannot implement through policies themselves because even though you might have a policy to provide education through universities and schools right on-the-job training is, as the name suggests, something that can only be provided on the job. So you couldn't have a government spending program to provide vocational training in the same way that you might be able to um, have it within a company. Yes, you could have in apprenticeships, but for somebody who's sort of in their 30s and 40s, that's something where it should be a company recognises that their responsibility is to train their employees without doing a cost-benefit analysis of how much more productive that employee is going to be and whether that's going to pay for the cost of training. So it's on those areas where governments fail that I do think companies should step in. But again, the question to ask first is, is there a government and policy failure? Because if not, then you probably shouldn't be engaging in the responsible action unless you can see there's going to be some sort of long-term shareholder value benefit. So, Alex, we're we're drawing to the end of this podcast series on your book now. Before we sign off, are there there any sort of key points that you would like to make by way of summary? Absolutely. First of all, thanks so much for, for interviewing me, Tom, and thank you to everybody for listening. I think a good place to end is just to recap why I chose to write the book to begin with uh, over two and a half years ago. It was to try to highlight that responsibility is something which should be central to a company rather than just to be seen as worthy or a luxury that could only be invested in when times are good. Because often we, we think that responsibility is at the expense of profits. So I wanted to come at this as a hard, hard finance professor who cares about the numbers and to say well actually doing all of these things for society it's not just worthy it's not just moral but it's good business sense so hopefully we're going to forget the idea responsible business in the future right nobody talks about financially profitable business because we take for granted the fact that business should be financially profitable and certainly hopefully in in five years time it may be that we don't need the word responsible business to begin with because business should be taken for granted as being responsible and while all that might seem wishful thinking what i wanted to highlight is that it's based on a lot of rigorous evidence and that evidence is often written in a rather complex way to get published in an academic journal. So what I wanted to do and what we've done really well, I think, over the past podcast is to bring this to life with some practical real life examples. So my message then to the listeners is regardless of whether you are an executive or an investor or an employee or or just somebody just interested in business, this whole idea about responsibility, if you want to pursue it, you don't just need to swing in the wind or to, to shoot from the hip and go into the unknown. You're actually going to be riding on the tailwinds of rigorous evidence and also practical frameworks and some aspirational examples that you can follow. So that gives a lot of guidance, a lot of resources to anybody who wants to put this into practice. And I hope that what we've done through the book and the series of podcasts is give that confidence and those examples for anybody who wants to pursue this either as an executive, an employee, a citizen or as an investor. 
Well, Alex, it's been a real privilege debating these issues with you. Uh, your work has made a great contribution to creating a coherent and evidence-based case for responsible business, trying to shed some light amongst the heat of the debate. So to remind listeners, you can buy the book and access a whole load of great related resources at growthepie.net. And this finishes our initial series of Grow the Pie podcast. Thanks for listening and, and do comment on and rate the podcast. We plan to be back for more episodes in future to look at how topical corporate actions or policy initiatives grow or shrink the pie. So do stay subscribed to get those future episodes. Thank you for listening. Thanks very much, Tom.